a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Pull up a chair. Let's engage in some wrong think, shall we? Oh, I know it sounds like it's a really dangerous thing to do, but it's kind of a necessary thing in a time where there is mass deception and there are propaganda efforts from every side to try to sway or control what you and I think or what we're able to consider. This program does not claim to have all the answers to all of life's problems. But I will claim that uh, we're making a sincere effort to ask the right questions to where we can can make our own decisions, make our own judgments about what's going on. Unfortunately, there's a great deal of uh, our mass media today, which is serving the role of a narrative manager or basically they're the ones uh, guarding the information and making sure that uh, we don't stray outside the boundaries of what we're allowed to think about. We're actually going to start off with that today. But first, let me give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you want to be a person who sees the world as it is. At least I'm guessing that's why you would listen to a program like this one. And you're willing to do your own homework, which is good. You shouldn't be taking anything I say or any of the articles or any of the guests that I have. You shouldn't be taking them just, you know, on on the fact, well, they said it, and I pretty much agree with them, so it must be true. you got to be willing to, to look at it, weigh it out for yourself, and come to your own decision. But would, it fi- would you find it interesting if you knew how hard the world's top Internet portals are working to keep us within the boundaries of approved opinion? I'm specifically talking about Google and YouTube. Maybe you got the latest update in terms of YouTube's terms of service. Got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute asking, is YouTube now presuming to be in charge of science? And if you've read the terms of service, you'll understand what he's talking about here. He says, courts around the country are striking down vaccine mandates, even COVID restrictions in general. Protests have erupted the world over. There's a trend in which major names and faces that imposed lockdowns on the country are resigning from their positions or otherwise dropping out of politics. The Biden administration in general has sunk in the polls. And the resistance to the entire regime of command and control that seized the world in March of 2020 is growing by the day. But Jeffrey Tucker says none of this seems to matter to the dominant internet portals or internal portals of Google and YouTube, which Google owns. He says they occupy the number one and number two spots for global traffic and reach. Now, no matter what you think of them, that's some serious power over what the majority of people read, see, hear, and believe. And it's true that critically thinking people have already shifted to DuckDuckGo or Rumble and many other platforms, and their market share is growing, to be sure. But nothing can compare to that 75% market share of YouTube or the 86% share of search controlled by Google. 
Now, Jeffrey Tucker says often individual users can develop a distorted sense of that whole based on their browsing habits. He says, you like brownstone.org, for instance. You get great information from this site. So it's easy to forget that its 4 million users seem nearly invisible compared with the traffic enjoyed by the larger sites. No, he says, being on the admin side, the admin side rather, it's a lot easier to observe how a myth spread, for example, by CNN could reach tens of millions of people, whereas its refutation on a small site might only reach a few thousand. Therefore, the myth stands. So for this reason, their terms of use seriously matter for culture, politics, intellectual life, and even public opinion in general. And Google has just changed its terms as they apply to YouTube. Now, it's a fair presumption that Google's search results will probably reflect these same terms. They pertain directly to the science behind COVID, mitigation policies, and mandates on the vaccines. These new terms go into effect on January 6th of 2022. Why that date, he wonders. If uh, they're truly enforced, freedom of speech and the ability of scientific process to operate unimpeded will be severely curtailed. Jeffrey Tucker says under the new rules, you cannot claim that the pandemic is over, which is to say the pandemic is now declared to last forever. You cannot make claims that any group or individual has immunity to the virus or cannot transmit the virus, which means that all the science on naturally acquired immunity can be deleted. The terms of use also say you cannot claim that vaccines do not reduce the risk of contracting COVID-19, which directly contradicts the FDA. Quote, the scientific community does not yet know if the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine will reduce such transmission. End quote. You cannot post videos alleging that social distancing and self-isolation are not effective in reducing the spread of the virus. And you cannot claim that wearing a mask causes oxygen levels to drop to dangerous levels. Oh, and there's this one. You cannot make claims that achieving herd immunity through natural infection is safer than vaccinating the population. Even though endemicity is inevitable and vaccines cannot make a substantial contribution to its achievement due to their inability to protect fully against infection and transmission. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, as usual, the long list of do-nots also includes statements that are patently false and otherwise ridiculous, so much so that it seems not dangerous to permit them. The full list is extremely long. It includes many fully open questions that Google slash YouTube wants to be declared closed. Some of the do-nots include statements that are contradicted by statements from Fauci and Biden, such as the rule that you cannot make claims that any vaccine is a guaranteed prevention method for COVID-19. Yet the head of the CDC made exactly this claim. He says if these rules are strenuously enforced, millions of videos, interviews, television shows, lectures, press conferences, and even scientific presentations will disappear. Maybe tens of millions, actually. All in the name of promoting science or protecting science against its corruption as if YouTube should be the determinant of what constitutes good science. And here's what Google says about the consequences of violating the rules. We may allow content that violates the misinformation policies noted on this page if that content includes additional context in the video, audio, title, or description. This is not a free pass to promote misinformation. 
Additional context may include countervailing views from local health authorities or medical experts. We may also make exceptions if the purpose of the content is to condemn, dispute, or satirize misinformation that violates our policies. We may also make exceptions for content showing an open public forum, like a protest or public hearing, provided the content does not aim to promote misinformation that violates our policies. Okay, so here's a quick uh, translation. If your content violates this policy, we'll remove the content and send you an email to let you know. If this is your first time violating our community guidelines, you'll likely get a warning with no penalty to your channel. If it's not, we may issue a strike against your channel. If you get three strikes within 90 days, your channel will be terminated. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says an intriguing question for any defender of private enterprise, and he says, I'm certainly that, is why Google would so willingly turn over its platform to a branch of the state and its medical-slash-policy priorities. He says it cannot simply be the desire to only say true things because there's plenty that's thoroughly disputable in these rules. And much has already been challenged by vast quantities of peer-reviewed studies. So how does it come to be that such a huge business can be fully captured by government? Now, he says, I have friends who say it's the reverse, actually. Google has fully captured government and is driving forward the agenda of politics. But Tucker says, regardless, it becomes a troubled world in which one can no longer distinguish business from the state or either from big pharmaceutical companies. The state finds it more advantageous to enlist business in its rights violations than risk the court challenges that come with directly violating the First Amendment. The law restricts states in ways that do not apply to private companies. So the answer for the state seems obvious. Use the private sector to achieve state policy priorities, particularly as it pertains to controlling the information to which the public has access. I know, I felt the chill go up my spine too. And I happen to think he's right. Jeffrey Tucker says others might observe that Google has everything to gain from its investment in lockdown policies and mandates, all the better to keep people glued to their personal computers. Now, even granting that big tech benefited enormously from the lockdowns, he says, that's an outlook on enterprise that's too cynical for me to believe at this stage. Or he says, maybe I'm just naive. I'm going to come back to Jeffrey Tucker's article here in a few moments. Of course, I have included a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So you can check this out at your leisure. If you haven't subscribed to the Brownstone Institute, uh, can I recommend it? There's a lot of great information coming your way from that website. And again, it's not that they have cornered the market on truth, but they're definitely asking the right kinds of questions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, before I dive back into this uh, Jeffrey Tucker article about uh, is YouTube now presuming to be, you know, the uh, the one who tells us uh, what's what science is and what it isn't, we'll get back to that in just a moment. I want to give some love to one of my sponsors, and that is SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, they're actually, this is a brick-and-mortar business, which you will find in St. George, Utah. They've been in business since 1984. It was started by Ken Harker back then, and we are talking about a business that's only changed owners twice in all that time. Right now, it's owned by Teresa Alsop and her husband, uh, Eric Alsop. But uh, if you are in any way 
associated with, uh, with sewing or with embroidery or quilting. And these are way bigger markets than you might think. I mean, if you're, if you're not involved in it, you might think, ah, oh, nobody sews. We just buy our clothes at the store. No, there are a lot of people who do amazing things. And Sewing and Quilting Center has the machines, they have the repairs, they have the thread and, and fabric, and oh, and the training to help you get the most out of those machines. Anyway, you can check out their website. There's a link to it there in my show notes. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop in and say hello to them. I have a feeling this is the kind of thing that could become much more popular, especially as inflation continues to drive up prices. You know, people may see the wisdom in uh, learning how to make or repair, you know, their own clothes versus just got to go buy a new one. Anyway, back to the article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. Is YouTube now presuming to be in charge of science? Now, he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, the fact that Google has everything to gain, you know, from its investment in lockdown policies and mandates if, if it wants to keep people glued to their computers. But he says, I, he goes, that may be too cynical even for me. He says, what does seem clear is that these censorious moves could seriously erode market share and give rise to new platforms that will eventually compete more directly. But before we get too optimistic about this, the time between now and then is still a very long time away. While the change in the scientific culture that uh, this move will enact kicks off next month. Now, he includes the full text of the Google, the Google terms of use as it pertains to the most critical issues affecting freedom, free speech, and science in the world today. In fact, he says, for your research amusement, you can see via the Wayback Machine how this page has expanded from its initial page on May, 20, May 2nd, 2020 to today. Pretty interesting stuff. And they've re- they have really thrown a lot of rules up there about how you can and how you can't discuss, you know, whatever's going on with, uh, with COVID. Or I, I suppose that would translate to pretty much anything else. But doesn't it strike you as odd? That, uh, that we are being so strictly, you know, regulated, or at least there, there's the, this attempt to regulate any discussion. I mean, I can't think of another time where, you know, throttling back on, on the information people could see has, has been so prevalent, at least in my lifetime. But here we are. I just I wonder what what does this portend for the future? I mean, are we are we going to reach the point where you know people just sit around with an IV attra- attached to them, or or like uh, like the diabetic insulin pumps that that uh, some diabetes patients have? You know, we'll just have that, and that'll you know automatically give us our booster on a daily basis while we just sit and you know read what uh, whatever you know the major search engines or major social media sites will let us know about uh, about what's going on in the world. I mean, I'm only half joking here. If, if you have followed the news headlines, um, what's happening right now? Germany just issued a lockdown for the unvaccinated. Spoke to my daughter in Germany yesterday, and yeah, she said the, the rules there are just incredible. You know, if, if you are unvaccinated, you, uh, this is up to this point. They may be, they may actually just be telling you, nope, stay home. You can't even go to work. But if you wanted to go to work, but you were unvaccinated, you didn't have your vax passport, You had to go to a government building. There's a designated building in your area. Stand in line. Get your COVID test every single day. That's before you can go to work. 
Yeah, I know. It's like, now maybe if you're one of those people, everybody should be vaccinated. That serves them right. You know, okay. That's, that's one point of view. On the other hand, it just seems, uh, seems a, a little bit heavy handed. But people apparently are doing it. Austria, of course, is in lockdown. Australia, which I think is probably one of the biggest cautionary countries to look at, uh, you know, in that uh, I think Australia probably has more in common with America. And I'm not saying that, you know, Germany is like totally, you know, totally different point of view. But um, I think Americans and Australians probably have, uh, you know, there's there's some kinship there. But they're literally rounding people up and putting them into camps and and they call them voluntary isolation camps or voluntary quarantine camps. But guess what? When you have barbed wire and you have armed men standing there to make sure that you don't leave, and there was, I guess, three aborigines who left and uh, they had to be chased down and captured and brought back. I don't know. That doesn't seem very voluntary to me. That just seems like uh, somebody's really determined to to keep things absolutely locked down. So if you're one of the people who's who's resisting this kind of authoritarianism, well, looks like we got our work cut out for us. And and this is why we need the best information that we can get. I want to shift here to uh, you know asking what's the harm in social media giants trying to control what ideas are allowed to reach your eyes and ears. Well, John Stossel suggests Facebook fact checkers are actually stifling open debate. And that's a bad thing, right? If you're, if you're trying to uh, discover the truth, open debate is actually your friend. Stossel says, I've reported how Facebook censors me, and I've also learned that they censor environmentalist Michael Schellenberger, statistician Bjorn Lomberg, and former New York Times columnist, columnist John Tierney. He says, Facebook's fact checkers claim we spread misinformation. Now, in his latest video, he says, John Tierney argues that the people guilty of spreading misinformation are Facebook and its fact checkers. And Stossel says he's right. Facebook doesn't do its censoring alone. It partners with groups approved by something called the Pointer Institute, a group that claims a commitment to nonpartisanship. But Pointer isn't. Nonpartisan. It promotes progressive jargon like decolonize the media, and it praises left-leaning journalists. Once they even proposed blacklisting conservative news sites. One fact-checker that Pointer approved is a Paris-based group calling itself Science Feedback. Now, Science Feedback objected to an article Tierney wrote, saying that forcing children to wear masks can be harmful. He cited, he cited a study which later passed peer review in which parents complained about masks giving their children headaches and making it difficult for them to concentrate. Facebook calls Tierney's article partly false. Now, that partly false label is nasty because it leads Facebook to stop showing Tierney's work to many people. But here's the point. His article was accurate. Science feedback censored it because parents' comments are not a random sample. But it's obvious that such comments, rather, are not random. Tierney acknowledges this in his article. Now, what should be labeled false is science feedback's sloppy fact check. It includes a key takeaway that says masks are fine for children over two. But that's not something that most scientists believe, says Tierney. That's not what the World Health Organization believes. And again, he's right. The World Health Organization says kids under five should generally not be required to wear masks. 
Tierney says there are all kinds of well-documented effects of wearing a mask. Workers who wear masks for a couple hours in Germany have to stop and take a a half-hour break. So this shouldn't be a controversial thing to say. And John Stossel says, no, it shouldn't. But Facebook often censors things that should be talked about. I mean, keep in mind, they banned the discussion of the idea that COVID-19 escaped from a lab. Right? Only reversing course when the Biden administration did. The science feedback doesn't like articles questioning the climate crisis. That's what got Schellenberger punished. They censored me for saying we're not in a sixth mass extinction, Schellenberger complains. But we're not. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. There is a link to it in the show notes. See it for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing this excellent article from John Stossel about how Facebook fact-checkers are stifling open debate. I mean, isn't it? It's, on the one hand, we should feel flattered, right? Hey, somebody's looking out for me. Somebody's trying to protect me from bad information. On the other hand, I wonder if that protection can become a little bit smothering. Yeah, right? It's like, this is worse than a helicopter mom, you know, hovering over you every second and making sure, you know, that no germs get on you. But we need open debate. We need the ability to question and to, to discuss these kind of things. And he gives examples of people like, like uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Schellenberger, published for questioning the climate crisis. Uh, Mr. Lomberg, who was censored for pointing out rising temperatures actually have saved lives because cold weather kills more people than warm weather. Stossel says, no scientific study has yet proven that a recent drop in deaths was caused by the temperature rise. But so what? The main point that Lomborg was making was uh, temperature-related deaths fell while the planet warmed, and that is true. Yet science feedback works with Facebook to keep that out of your Facebook feed. Lomborg says the fact-checkers want people alarmed by climate change. It makes it a lot easier to get people to donate money. Science feedback's leader now plans to expand his censorship powers so he can censor not only Facebook but other social media. And John Stossel says, okay, that's frightening. He says, I sympathize with Facebook. Some users spread lies. Politicians blame Facebook and demand the company do something. But he says there's no way Facebook can police all the posts. So it does destructive things like partnering with the Pointer Institute fact checkers. Now, these fact checkers have a mission outside just facts, says Lomberg. They also want you to not know stuff. Now, that's not fact check. That's simply saying we don't want to hear this opinion in the public space. Frankly, that's terrifying. The goal is nice, less information on the Internet, but you could very well end up in a place where we only have approved facts that fit the current narrative. And that would be a terrible outcome. But that's the outcome we've got, says Stossel. Facebook and its censors are now the enemy of open debate. Tierney says they're trying to suppress people whose opinions and evidence they don't like. They're not fact checkers. They are fact blockers. And John Stossel says the world doesn't need more fact blockers. We need more freedom to speak, not less. Tend to agree. That's why programs like this and, uh, you know, uh, 
and others exist. You know, I'm, I'm one small voice among many, many voices. But as long as I have breath, I will continue to try to speak and encourage people question these things. Whether you agree with me or not, that's irrelevant. It's probably healthier for both of us if you don't agree. And I do appreciate those people who will hold my feet to the fire and tell me, Brian, I've been checking this. I think you're wrong, and here's why. I've learned a lot that way. But when someone's trying to preemptively keep you from even considering anything that falls outside of the official narrative, I'm sorry, there, I, I, I try to ascribe noble intentions to what people are doing, but I can't see anything there except I must control what you think. I must prevent you from being exposed to any ideas other than what I tell you. And that sounds so controlling and so cultish. I think it's pretty dangerous. I think even Jim Jones you know, from the People's Temple down in Guyana, I think even he would be like, whoa, huh, let's not go overboard here. All right, shifting gears. Came across another excellent article about the importance of the jury. And, you know, we all can, I think most of us can understand the importance of the jury in the pursuit of justice. That's not too difficult to grasp. But would it surprise you to learn that the jury also plays an essential role in protecting against government overreach. This is an article by Jake Welch. The beauty of the jury system as it came in the Rittenhouse trial. Now, again, I apologize for bringing up Kyle Rittenhouse again. I know a lot of people are, I just want to move on. I mean, Kyle himself has said, look, uh, they gave him back his AR-15. And he's like, I'm going to destroy that gun. I don't want anything to do with it. So, you know, this is not, uh, let's glorify and give high fives and chest bumps again here. But let's learn the lessons that we can. And Jake Welch says the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was one of, if not the, most highly publicized and politicized cases since the trial of O.J. Simpson, with the jury's November 19th verdict causing a storm of both approbation and disapprobation around the world. Now, such high-profile cases are bound to elicit aggressive responses from all sides. Yet what changed this time was the difference in response from certain sections of the public, namely that uh, some viewed the American justice system as defunct and obsolete based on the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on all charges and therefore needed to be reconstructed. But he says, I disagree entirely. Jake Welch says, uh, one notable fact about the Rittenhouse trial was the success of the system that acquitted Rittenhouse on all charges. Now, he says, for anybody who followed the trial closely, they would have seen that the pressure on the jury was nearly overwhelming. The pressure came from various institutions, corporations, and political figures alike. One example of this was the trial judge having to urge the jury not to consider the opinions of President Biden. Everybody felt it was their duty to weigh in, apparently. Ben & Jerry's, which is an ice cream company, for example, tweeted... The Rittenhouse trial displays yet again that our justice system is racist. MSNBC had commentators calling him a little murderous white supremacist, even after the verdict. And thousands of people had liked and retweeted Biden's video linking Rittenhouse with Charlottesville white supremacists. Yet there was more. And that was the threat of violence and looting. As reported by The Guardian, the city of Kenosha was on standby, awaiting the verdict of the jury, as it was hoping to avoid the violence experienced last year. An even greater scandal was the news network MSNBC was banned from the courtroom because one of their reporters skipped a red light to follow a bus escorting the jury home. 
something unquestionably prejudicial to the proceedings. Yet despite all this, the jury nevertheless found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty. A small collection of the public-minded people evaluated the evidence before them and stood defiantly against the state and much of the media to ensure someone innocent of the crimes he was accused of did not spend the rest of his life in prison. This is precisely the reason why juries are worth protecting. Now, he says, I'm sure there were many who wished to see his trial decision reversed or heard again before a political body who would, would, agree with, would agree from Mr. Bumble from Oliver Twist when he says, juries is in educated, gro- let me try that again, in educated, vulgar, groveling wretches. Now, that's no doubt sometimes the case. But the point is, juries have done more to protect the freedoms of the individual more than any philosopher, jurist, politician, or political commentator ever have. The function of the jury system, he says, something barrister Sadakat Kadri calls a civic sacrament, has been widely forgotten and wholly misunderstood as it involves archaic language and sometimes even appeals to sentiment. It dates back as far as King Alfred the Great's legal code promulgated in the 9th century and has evolved regularly since then. Now, one cannot pretend to suggest that juries have been or always will be perfect, because they're not. Far from it. David Hume, for example, made the point in the days of the supremacy of the Star Chamber, juries were no manner of security to the liberty of the subject, where the court was resolved to have him condemned. But there can, however, be no doubt that they have been and are a veritable good for us. They ensure, as was demonstrated by the Rittenhouse trial, the state cannot imprison an individual arbitrarily. On the contrary, the state has to present a factual, logical, and well-reasoned argument to 12 random members of the public, persuading them that it is justifiable to remove the individual's freedom. However, the state is fighting against the defense, which seeks to protect the fundamental liberties of the individual and has to prove that the individual is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, a roughly 95% certainty that the defendant is guilty. So there can be no wonder why Lord Devlin, one of the most preeminent British justices of the 20th 20th century, called the jury the lamp that shows that freedom lives. It means that individuals have a fighting chance in the courtroom. It's not like the European tradition whereby two lawyers are chatting a bit with the judge, usually behind closed doors or in an empty courtroom, about how long the sentence should be, while the defendant is forced to wallow in his alleged criminality. The judge is omnipotent and dictates the direction of the trial. The counsel is duller and useless and simply there to ask witnesses questions. But in no way similar to the art of cross-examination. Of course, there are some advantages to this, such as ensuring justice is as smooth and efficient as a conveyor belt. i got to tap the brakes here because we're up against our own break, but um, this excellent article, will be available in the show notes at the com. Again, this is from Jake Welch. It's from AmericanThinker.com. And hopefully it helps you see the beauty of the jury system, not just in the Rittenhouse case, but in other cases as well. I know, it used to be really fashionable to talk about, hey, how can I get out of jury duty? Based on what I've seen, I would think any freedom-minded person would clamor to want to be on a jury just to hold the state back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sending out some love today for the concept of the jury. And I'll admit, I was one of those people who used to really get bugged when I would see a notice for jury duty show up in my mailbox. Oh, man. Gonna have to take time off work. It's inconvenient. They want me to travel to another city. And, oh, this sucks. This is so bad. But I've I've paid attention now for the better part of the last 30 years. And what I have seen has convinced me that it's one of the most noble things that you or I could be asked to do, to sit on a jury. And I think especially people who understand the proper role of government, as well as the improper things that government may be doing, you're needed. And sometimes it's, it's a matter of somebody, uh, a principled juror, who understands that the state is out of bounds or that the charges have been misapplied or that they don't fit, who stands firm against the other jurors and, and prevents injustice from taking place. You know, the, the article here from... Uh, from Jake, uh, sorry, his last name escaped me, Jake Welch, talks about efficient justice, but he says efficient justice fails to recognize the humanity and raw emotion that one feels when they're staring at 30 years in prison. The English and American tradition, on the other hand, is indeed an inefficient, costly, exhaustive, time-consuming slog, exhausting the defendant, his and his victims' families, and all those involved, But that's the price of a fairer system, one that prioritizes the defendant's freedom above everything else. Now, he says there's a more fundamental reason why juries exist, and that is for the reason that justice is near impossible to define. Rigorous debate about the meaning of justice goes as far back as ancient Greece and has troubled the minds of some of the most intelligent people who've lived since then. But realistically, very few people have even come close to a satisfactory definition of justice. Yet even then... The definitions are far from unchallengeable. Instead, it's much easier to see what justice is not than what it is. Determining an injustice is something most people are capable of, hence why our societies rely on the public's sagacity rather than jurisprudential knowledge. So consider this example. What is just punishment for jaywalking without any other circumstances being relevant? A man simply walks across the road when the light is red and is caught by the police. That's it. The answer to the question of a just punishment is indeed difficult to know. Now, what, on the other hand, is easier to argue is that a $1 million fine is unjust and that the state wanting to send a jaywalker to prison would be extremely unjust. But what if the state wishes to send him to prison for that? Well, fortunately, we're from a tradition that guarantees the state simply cannot do that arbitrarily. In the Anglosphere, habeas corpus is a reality for most others, including first world countries, where it's an ambition or a nuisance. Now, what happened at the Rittenhouse trial was a triumph of the ordinary man over the arbitrary power of the state, and there is a valuable lesson in that. The state thought by simply bringing a prosecution with less than satisfactory evidence, along with enough political pressure, that that would be sufficient to convict Rittenhouse. But thankfully for all of us, it wasn't. That's why they're debating the jury system, because with it existing, the power of the state is forced back. Now he says, I'm sure many today would prefer a legal system without juries and constant discussion about their efficiency and effectiveness make this a distinct likelihood for the future. 
But he concludes by saying, I know for a fact that if I were forced to sit in the dock accused of a crime I've not committed, I know what system I would choose. Again, this is Jake Welch from American Thinker. There's a link in the show notes. One other commentary about juries that I thought was worthwhile, just to further drive home this point of how essential it is for protection of the rights of the average citizen. This is from Kent McManigle from EverythingVoluntary.com. And again, this has to do with, with Kyle Rittenhouse. He says, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial may have served as a canary in the coal mine, or at least that's how I saw it. And his reasoning is this. Kent McManigle says, government doesn't respect your right of self-defense and would prefer you die at the hands of attackers. Fortunately, the jury saw through the malicious prosecution. Unfortunately, much of the public believed the lies spun by the national media corporations to advance their anti-gun, anti-defense agenda. Rittenhouse was even called a white supremacist and his attackers were called his victims. Rittenhouse was persecuted for or for, for doing something everyone has a natural right to do. Even the attacker who testified admits he wasn't shot till he pointed his gun at Rittenhouse. It would have been impossible of Rittenhouse to allow, or irresponsible, rather, of Rittenhouse to allow himself to be shot. So the trial, if legitimate, would have been thrown out immediately with this admission, but it wasn't. Now, some excuse his attackers because Rittenhouse had a gun. Well, so did the attacker who survived. Holding a gun is no excuse for anyone to attack you physically or politically. Guns aren't the only tools that can kill, so can skateboards and fists. Now, the ridiculous prosecution even argued that someone has no right to claim self-defense if they have a gun. To claim you lose the right to claim self-defense if you're armed with a gun is not rational, but political. First of all, rights can't be lost. Second, who claims you've done something wrong by being prepared for an emergency? It would be the same if the roles were reversed and Rittenhouse had been the one to point his gun at an innocent person and be shot because of it. So to charge him with a crime and force him to defend himself from government was itself a criminal act. The dishonesty of the prosecution was astounding. The prosecutor in this case is as much a criminal thug as those Rittenhouse shot in self-defense. He had no case to stand on. Kyle Rittenhouse was a political prisoner and is owed restitution by those who kept this farce going, individually, from their personal bank accounts and from selling their property, not from tax funds. He says the prosecutor and others should be destitute after committing this crime against Rittenhouse. Proper restitution would make Rittenhouse nearly as rich as Elon Musk. Now, Kent McManigal says, I don't believe the court, uh, the government court system is legitimate. I have no respect for it whatsoever. I'm still relieved that it sometimes, thanks to a good jury, stumbles across the right decision. I think back to a friend of mine in southern Utah who uh, he and his dad were facing uh, uh, a felony charge for, I think it was, uh, wanton destruction of property. And, and I'll, I'll try to sum this up as quickly as I can, but the bottom line was, they lived well out in the country. They had horses, and apparently their neighbor had uh, a, a horse, a stallion, a stud that would come over and uh, was not being properly corralled. And it would come over and would try to breed with their mares. And after, I guess, a long time of warning the neighbor, you need to keep your horse on your property. You need to keep your horse away from our property. Um, they came out and found the horse again had had gotten to their to their mares and at this point 
This rancher said, enough, and went ahead and gelded this stallion. Now, I'm trying to put this in layman's terms without being too graphic, but essentially the, the horse's stud days were over because its testicles were removed. The horse itself was alive and well, but it uh, it no longer was going to face the the temptation to come over and, and breed with, with this other person's mares. Well, the police were called. Charges were filed, you know, and I mean, you know, felony charges. Well, the value of that horse is over $1,000 or whatever the, the limit is. So they filed felony charges. And basically, my friend and his dad ended up having to go to court. And they had a jury trial. And in the end, um, it was not a felony conviction. I think there there was... Uh, there was some restitution that was given, but, it, but there was a, either a lesser charge or a lesser punishment, but it all came down to the jury refusing to throw them in prison for protecting their own livestock from someone else's livestock that was not being properly controlled or contained. And when I asked my friend, you know, how, how did it feel, you know, sitting there in court? Were you nervous at all? He says, I really was. But he said, after the... the the jury refused to convict him of those felony charges. He said there was a woman on the jury who came up to him afterwards and told him, you know, you know, we, I, I voted the way I did, you know, because I could not in good conscience put another person in jail for that. And, and this is the point I want to make. It wasn't a bunch of fancy legal reasoning, and it wasn't, you know, because, you know, their lawyer had the smartest argument. Frankly, I think they may have been representing themselves, and they're, they're pretty smart individuals. But my friend's point was, it was simply love for their fellow human beings. A juror who said, you know what, I would not feel right putting my neighbor away or, or seeing my neighbor punished in this way for what he's been accused of here when it just doesn't fit the charges that have been leveled. Every courtroom needs someone who has that kind of love of their fellow man sitting on the jury. Not because they're a bleeding heart, but simply because they can recognize that sometimes that pursuit of justice really becomes a pursuit of injustice. And love is enough to stop it in its tracks. This is The Brian Hyde Show.